You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I hope you like. It'd be kind of weird to have you just standing and staring at me. Please sit down. <laughs> Good morning, my name's Scott. And uh, we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So you can turn, we'll be right at the end of Matthew 6 today. And that's kind of the uh, mode of preaching we do at Redeeming Grace Church. Just a book of the Bible or like a dense section, verse by verse type thing. Uh, So there's some things I'm going to say this morning, particularly up front, that are going to tie back into things we've said previously. And so I encourage you to go back and dig through uh, some of those prior sermons or just texts in general. And uh, also, as we kind of kick off a new series of small groups and whatnot, we're going to be doing a lot of work to uh, think through the text and interact with the text, engage with the text the Sunday or before Sunday, so that as you're coming in, we've already kind of like prepped our hearts and worked up a hunger for the word and uh, just opening ourselves to, uh, yeah, just to be spoken of to by Jesus. So I'm in Matthew 6. Verse 25, before I begin, I'm just going to ask you to think about something for a second. This, this passage is about anxiety, all right? So I want you to close your eyes, do that now, I'm checking, okay? Think about something that tends to make you anxious. What are you anxious about? For me, it tends to be like big life decisions, moves or jobs, career, things like that. For you, it might be your children's safety could be money issues, could be the thought of hosting or meeting new people, maybe it's national politics or global events, maybe it's the deployment or PCS orders you're waiting for your husband to receive, maybe it's a relationship with your boss or your wife or your in-laws. So think about what it is, what causes you to be anxious. Okay, I want you to hold that thing in your mind now, whatever it is, you can open your eyes. And so as Jesus speaks to us today from the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to direct everything that he says and apply it directly to that thing. I could spend hours uh, like dreaming up examples or illustrations to cover every single like scenario of anxiety. I am going to talk through different illustrations and examples, but I want you to take the word and I can, I can lead us into that, but you are the one who has to chew on it, digest it, apply to yourself. And so I encourage you, I'm going to you know, kind of point that out from time to time. As we're going through this text, really let Jesus speak to that thing that you just selected. Hold that right at the front of your mind and let the text speak directly to you this morning. All right, so I'm going to read the whole passage. It starts in verse 25, and we use the English Standard Version here. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles under your, uh, your chair. Sorry, I didn't mention that right at the get-go. And um, we're in, again, Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Please bow your heads in prayer. Father, I pray that Jesus' very words here today would be as tender drops of rain upon the souls of all gathered present. Feed us from your word, strengthen us, renew us, cleanse us that we may delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay, so the very first thing we have to deal with is the very first word. All right, if you've been in church a while, you've, you've probably heard this saying. The first word in verse 25 is therefore. And every time you encounter a therefore in scripture, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore, all right? <clears throat> and the word therefore signals an advance in an argument based on things that were previously said, right? So we can't really step forward into the text until we go back and recall everything Jesus has said. Again, because we've been preaching through these passages, we've been studying them in our small groups and stuff, I'm going to just review some points quickly without exposition. But we need to see what those points are arranged before this passage so we can understand why Jesus is arriving at the conclusion that he is. And I'm going to do that now. So again, the, the conclusion is don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about your life. So here are some of the points that Jesus has brought up, and I'm going to tie them directly to the conclusion. Because you're going to lay your, up for yourself treasure in heaven, do not be anxious about your life. Because your heavenly Father will reward you in secret, do not be anxious about your life. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, do not be anxious about your life. Because the meek will inherit the earth, do not be anxious about your life. Because the poor in spirit and persecuted will receive the kingdom of heaven, do not be anxious about your life. One of the primary points of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is to completely reorient our thinking. We tend to think like the world thinks, as, as fallen human cultures think, which is on what we can see, what we can taste, what we can know, just by our senses, which causes us to act worldly, to chase after things uh, of this world, to try to fight for our own security, our own fame and glory, our own righteousness, and the whole Sermon on the Mount is just laden with this theme of reorienting our vision on a much bigger cosmic scope of the kingdom of heaven. This is how our world thinks. Poor in spirit? We've got drugs and alcohols to numb your depression if you need it. Hungry for righteousness? What are you, a goody two-shoes? Meek? Uh, nice guys finish last. Love your enemies? I refuse to forgive those of the oppressor class. Give to the poor? Prayer? Fasting? If you don't look out for your own skin, no one else will. Treasures in heaven? Sounds like pie in the sky. YOLO, dude, you only live once, right? It was true in Jesus' day, and it's no different in our day. We're so focused on what we can see, Walking by faith is unnatural. It's not instinctive. And what Jesus is trying to do is to retrain our instincts so that we don't think that way anymore. We don't live by sight, but we live by faith. If we can see his kingdom for what it is. We can see his father for who he is. We can see the king of the kingdom, Christ himself, for who he is. And that will change our behavior. And that's what Jesus is going to do in this passage today. He wants us to see how the world works according to the father's economy not the economy of the world. And in the Father's economy, the last are first, servants are the greatest, 
and those who lose their life will save it. So Jesus is flipping everything on its head in order to help us see things for what they really are. They really are uh, ascertained by faith. We really see by faith things clearly, not what we see with our own eyes. And so here's Jesus' conclusion. After laying out all these points and many more, his conclusion is verse 25. Therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your clothes, what you will put on. And then he, he, dis- he proceeds to define what life is. Okay, those things I just mentioned. Food, clothing, drink. Those are like life's necessities. Right, having just taught on earthly riches, your eyes can just drift up to the like, paragraph above. That was on laying up treasures in heaven versus laying up treasures on earth. So think about riches, wealth, uh, vast material possessions. Jesus is now turning his attention to just basic necessities, like what you need to just survive. Everyone needs these things. And in Jesus' original audience, there were likely very few people who were really like wealthy, who could even, who could even uh, you know, desire to and even dream of acquiring vast amount of wealth. Most of the people following him around in the crowds would have been probably very low class, the poor amongst the poor in uh, the Galilee and Jerusalem regions. And so Jesus doesn't just warn the wealthy, he now turns to everyone else. And the one thing that these people are spending every hour of every day doing is chasing after their basic survival needs, right? Like there's no bank accounts, there's no emergency funds, there's no welfare system. These people are spending every day working themselves to try to just get bread for the next like 24 hours. And we don't, we hardly have to, you know, encounter that in our day and age, but Jesus's words to them are, don't be anxious. Don't worry about that. And that's actually a little galling to think that he would tell someone, like, the thing you need to survive that you don't have yet, you're gonna have to go find in the next 24 hours, uh, stop worrying about it. How can he do that? Uh, Well, Justin mentioned last week that just as the wealth hustle and bustle and scurry around, the wealthy hustle and bustle scurry around for uh, worldly treasure, the poor do that too. They just have less dollars to do that with. The sin of both is that they're concerned with their own self-interest, their own survival, and instead of having this eternal God-oriented perspective. And so that's what Jesus is going to try to do for us today in this passage, is to reorient our perspective again to the eternal and to the, the, how the world really works in his kingdom. And to do that, he's going to lay out four logical arguments, which is a little surprising, right? Logic, what? Where do you feel anxiety? Think about that. Think about that thing that I asked you to hold in the front of your mind today. When you feel anxious, okay, there's a pretty strong emotion, especially, you know, if it's something you're dwelling on or it's a really serious deal, where do you feel anxiety? Maybe it's in your stomach. You just feel like the pit of your stomach drops out, right? It could be in your throat. You feel like your throat constricting. Think about that thing that causes you to be anxious. How does that make you feel? All right? When you feel anxiety about the thing you're holding in front of your mind right now, when you're feeling that, is what you want to hear from your spouse or friends some, like, logic bomb dropped in your lap? <laughs> right? When you're feeling anxious about finances or relationships, right, or your health, okay, don't we want to be affirmed? Don't we want to feel understood? Don't we want people to say, oh, yeah, that, that is really tough. I can't believe you're going through that right now. I would feel terrible too. Okay, the last thing we want to hear when we feel anxious is some biblical truth plopped in our laps that shows us how silly we're being. We want to be affirmed. But Jesus, 
isn't going to do that for us this morning. He's going to do the opposite because he doesn't want to just change your feelings. He wants to change your thoughts. Why is that? In the West today, we tend to bifurcate. Well, more than that, that would mean to chop into two. We tend to chop the human person up into all sorts of parts. Like there's your body, and there's your mind, and there's your will, and there's your heart, and there's your emotions, right? And we kind of like try to hold all these things as distinctive, like separate parts of each ourselves. Um, but in the Hebrew scriptures, right, the human person exists just in two. There's your body, and there's your soul. And the term for that all throughout the Old Testament is the word heart. The word heart doesn't mean your emotions like it does for us today. The word heart is the seat of your desires. It's the seat of your thinking. It's the seat of your willpower. And so for Jesus and for his audience, right, those things are connected, your intellect and your emotions. We think they're separate. They're on two different tracks. So when I'm feeling anxious, address my emotions, right? When I'm thinking incorrectly, address my intellect. But that's not true. Your emotions follow your intellect, follow your mind, just like a passenger car follows a locomotive. And so Jesus isn't going to affirm us in our worry and anxiety today. He has something better for us. He's going to address our intellect and change our thinking again, change our eternal perspective. And in so doing, he will redirect our emotions and our anxiety when we experience it. All right? So I'm going, to, I'm going to show you an example of how this works before we jump into his four arguments. When I was a kid, and when you were a kid probably, right, you may be scared of the dark. Anyone scared of the dark when they were a kid? All right, scared of monsters under the bed? Scared of like walking out in the woods in the middle of the night, feeling like you're going to get eaten by a mountain lion or something? I'm still scared of that. But So <laughs> when I was a kid, I grew up in a 1930s like farmhouse that had this like dirt and cobwebs crawl space under the stairs that go down to the basement. Uh, and so when you're a kid, like all sorts of things live under there, right? <laughs> and our shower was downstairs. So if I wanted to go take a shower, I had to go down these steps, maybe like uh, seven or eight steps, pivot to the left, and there were three final steps to the floor of the basement, and there was nothing under them. So like if you went down and turned around and looked under those steps, it was just like dirt fading away into shadows, right? And again, like when you're a kid, your imagination goes crazy. And for me, what lived under there was spiders and velociraptors. I'm not, I'm not kidding at all. And I was terrified of like getting grabbed and dragged under those steps. So I would do this every time I would go down their stairs, pivot to the right, last three stairs. I would jump over them to the basement floor, sprint across the room because guess where the light switch was for the basement? On the other side of the room, right? Sprint to the other side, flick on the light switch, spin around to make sure there's no velociraptors waiting to eat me. I'm serious. I lived like this for years probably. Right. But what happened? Okay, what happened to me? Eventually I matured. I grew up. It didn't take a whole bunch of like therapy sessions with my mom to get me over my fear of velociraptors. All that happened was one day I realized that eh, velociraptors are extinct. They're all dead. There are no velociraptors under there. In fact, now that I'm a little bigger, I see a velociraptor probably couldn't fit under there. Right? So my intellect realized like how foolish I was being. And now all of a sudden, I wasn't filled with like bone-chilling terror every time I had to go downstairs to take a shower. That's how your anxiety works. That's how your fear really works. You don't need someone to address your emotions. You need them to address your mind, and your mind will pull them in the right direction. So that's what Jesus is going to do today. So take a look now with me. We're going to go through his four arguments. <clears throat> First one, it starts at the end of verse 25, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. 
what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on, here's this first argument. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. Jesus wants you to think about what actually gives quality to your life. Isn't living more than just survival? Isn't the purpose of life more than just getting the right calories, building shelter, and trying to live out as many days as you possibly can? Is life more than that? We know that it is. In the Mel Gibson movie, Braveheart, I love this one, William Wallace, he's like challenged to uh, recount what he's done and basically betray everything he's ever did or he's going to die. He has this great line that says like, all men die, not every man really lives. And we love that line. We're like, yes, absolutely. We know that life is more than just mere survival, that it's worth maybe dying young. It's worth maybe suffering for the sake of higher goals and higher ends. We kind of know that instinctively, and once we encounter the gospel, we know that that's absolutely the case because that's how Jesus lived. That's the pattern of his life. Life was not about mere survival for him. He went to the cross for you and me because it was worth more than just staying alive as long as he possibly could. And so Jesus asked this to your worry, that thing you're holding in the front of your mind, the thing that's causing you anxiety. His first question is this, isn't your life more than worrying about this thing? Like, could you still exist if you didn't have this? Would life go on? It's a rhetorical question. John MacArthur writes this. I thought this was really insightful from his commentary. Taking care of the body has always been a common obsession with men. Even when we're not starving or thirsty or naked, we still give an inordinate amount of time to our bodies. We pamper the body, decorate it, exercise it, protect it from disease and pain, build it up, slender it down, drape it with jewelry, keep it warm or keep it cool, train it to work and to play, help it to get to sleep, and a hundred other things to serve and satisfy our bodies. And Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus wants you to say, yes, life is more than survival. And what that more is, he's going to get to the at the end. So let's move on to his second argument. Look at verse 26 with me here. This one's a bit longer. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Here Jesus is making what's called an a fortiori argument. Turn to your neighbor and say a fortiori. There you go. Now you know some Latin. Okay? If you, if you sing or you're in music or anything, you know forte means like get stronger, get louder. All it means is it's an argument to the stronger, like from some really solid conclusion that you would obviously accept. And if you accept that conclusion, you must accept the one that comes after it. That's how it works. So here he's saying God provides for millions millions and millions of birds every single day. How much more is he going to provide for your needs? Birds don't know how to grow or cultivate their own food. They just have to hope that they can hunt and scavenge for it, right? They don't know how to, like, cultivate the ground. They don't know how to, like, prune fruit trees to, like, produce more food for themselves. They don't have some sort of, like, hidden bird cave where they store nuts and seeds and dried up worms for, like, drought and times of famine and stuff. No, they're totally dependent on God to provide their food for them. They just wake up every day and go looking for food. And Jesus is claiming, his claim is, that God exercises that kind of control over all creation. And you're part of that. Did you know that he does that? Did you know that God has that level of sovereignty and care for the little details of creation? He's not this deistic clockwork God who just wound up the universe and then let it spin. God is actively upholding the entire universe by the word of his power and overseeing every single little detail. Listen to this excerpt from Job 38. Can you hunt the prey for the lion 
or satisfy the appetite for young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? What I just read are more rhetorical questions. This time, God is asking Job these kinds of questions, and the answer to everyone is, no, I can't do that, but God does that. God is trying to like show Job how much he has to deal with, how much nitpicky little detail, minutia of the universe, God is actively controlling every second. And his conclusion at the end of the book of Job is, so Job, if I told you why you went through this suffering, like you, you, you couldn't possibly understand, right? So the question, can you hunt the prey for the lion, right? You can't, but God does. God actively feeds lions. Sure, the mother lion goes out and hunts or whatnot, but she's doing that under the providence and design of God. Or same thing, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? The answer is like, you don't, but God does that. God is that specifically involved in creation. And so here's Jesus's a fortiori argument. If God sees to it that the basic needs of every creature is met for as long as he desires to give them life, how much more does God see to it that our basic needs are met since we are his children? Did you catch that line from Jesus? It's in, the, it's in this argument here. Your heavenly father feeds them. Is God much of a father to birds? But is he a father to us? If God is willing to feed, care for birds, pigeons, peacocks, ducks, how much more is he willing to care for and see to us that our needs are met? That's Jesus' argument. Now again, apply this to whatever it was you decided you're going to hold in the front of your mind at the start of this. I asked you to close your eyes and think of something. What is it that causes you anxiety? Now ask yourself, if God is your heavenly father, is he not going to care for you? Do you see how silly we sound when we compare our worries to the sovereignty of our father and the goodness of our father? Don't you believe that you have a father who's going to take care of you? If you believe that, then start acting like it. Start thinking like that. That's Jesus's point. You have a father now. I've taught you this. I taught you to pray that way in the Lord's prayer. I made all these promises just right up here in the passages above. Your heavenly Father is going to see what you do and he's going to reward you in secret if you don't practice your righteousness before others. Right? You have a father. You're to think of God that way. He's not distant. He is near to you right? through Christ. So if you've trusted Christ and you're in him, you've had your sins forgiven, you've been adopted out of the family of Satan, you're no longer a child of wrath destined for destruction. You are now a child of God, remade through the Holy Spirit and adopted into his family. You're in his family. He's going to care for you. So every time you have a concern or a worry, you're checking that against that fact. That's a fact that Jesus wants to pound into your brain tonight. You're in a family. Like, God is going to look after you like a good father would look after his own children. Here's his third argument. It's in verse 27. It's shorter. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Okay, so not only is your worry unneeded, you don't need to worry. You've got a father. He feeds birds. How much more is he likely to feed you? Now the argument is this. Your worry is unnecessary. It's useless. Can you add a single hour to your life by worrying? Can you solve that problem you're thinking of by worrying? Does your anxiety solve your anxiety? That's Jesus' argument he's making. Right? First of all, life is not mere survival. That was his first argument. It's more than that. We're going to get to the more in a second. And then your worry is unneeded because you have a father that looks after you. And now it's, 
your worry is useless. It, it actually can't even solve your problems. So instead, think about this kind of truth from Psalm 139, right? Can you solve your problems? Can you add another hour to your life by worrying about this, that, or the other thing? Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Your heavenly Father numbered your days before you were even consumed, conceived. God has already decided what day you will die and how it's going to happen. He's already written that in the book. Parents, he's already decided what day your children will die and how that will happen. Children, God has decided what day your parents will die and how that will happen. And your worry for them can't change that. It can't change that. It's useless. It said you, you have to just trust that he's a good, gracious Heavenly Father and that what he has decreed to pass is ultimately going to be what gives him the greatest glory and us the greatest joy when we can see everything clearly in eternity. Here's Jesus' final argument. <clears throat> it's verses 28 through 30. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Hopefully you can hear that his, his fourth argument is a lot like the second one about the birds. It's another just a fortiori argument, works the exact same way. If God robes the grass of the field in beautiful flowers of every color, and then they die within like a single season, or they're cut down and used for firewood, <clears throat> how much more is he going to ensure that you are clothed and cared for throughout your entire life for as long as he gives you life? He's decreed what day you're going to die. He's going to make sure that you are sustained all the way up to that day without fail. He's telling us, you don't need to worry about your basic needs. He's telling this to a crowd of thousands, again, who spend every waking moment worrying about these things. Think about the things that we're worried about. I would guess, right, I want to be conscious that some people may have gone this way, but very few of us are worried about where we're going to find clothes, right? Very few of us are worried about where we're going to find drink or food, if Jesus can tell people in that situation, like abject poverty, don't be anxious about it. Don't worry about it. Your Father will care for you. How much more so the worries that we have, right? Kind of those like third world problem worries. How much more so is Jesus going to care for those, right? Or show them to be uh, like just completely irrelevant to what, what's, he's gonna, the direction he's going to lead us. That's how Jesus' argument goes in the fourth one there. And so Jesus concludes in verse 33, sorry, 31, he just restates his argument again. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He points out that living with worry and anxiety is, is essentially pagan, right? I'm going to read that part again. Don't ask these things. Don't be anxious, saying, blah, 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 blah. For... The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Why is, why is anxiety essentially pagan? It's unbelief, okay? It's because Jupiter or Juno or Apollo or Mars or Venus 
any of these Roman gods, they don't give a rip about the like poor peasant farmer living on the outskirts of Roman society, okay, who's literally working himself, literally working himself to the bone, right? Like his body's falling apart because day after day he's working super dangerous and demanding 12-hour or more day labor jobs just to like put bread on the table for his family. And I mean just that, just bread, like no meat or veggies. What a, what a poor existence compared to what we have. Right? Jupiter, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, are not looking after that person. Okay? They, they're into the celebrities, the heroes, the emperors, the kings, people like that. And all they're looking for is you to keep them happy so they don't send like a flood or a volcano or a barbarian horde to like wipe out your city because of their own vanity. Right? But for the most part, they don't care about the little guy. They just, they just care about like attaching their name to some great hero like Achilles or Hector or something like that if you read the Iliad. That's why worry is essentially pagan. It shows that you think Jesus' father is like those gods, right? That's what your worry does to the, shows the world. You don't expect him to care for you, but he will. He's a father. You're his child if you're in Christ. He loves to do good to those who trust him. He opposes the celebrity, but gives grace to the little guy. He is on the side of the humbled and oppressed, and he has all authority and power over creation. The Roman gods did not. He has all authority over power and creation so that he can see to it that everything we need to sustain our lives till all the way to where he has decreed that we will die, he has the power and authority and the desire and the will to shower us with his love in that regard and see that we're cared for. So when you worry... You actually declare to the world around you the opposite of everything Jesus just said. Jesus just said, your worry is uh, it's, it's unreasonable, right? Because life is more than food. Your worry is unnecessary because you're, you have a heavenly father who's going to take care of you. Your worry is useless because you can't even add a single day to your life. When you worry, you communicate the opposite. Jesus says your life isn't about food and drinking clothes. But when you worry, you show the world that life is just about mere survival. That's all, I'm, that's all I'm concerned about. Or, Jesus says your Heavenly Father cares for you. But then when you worry, you say to the world that you don't think God has the power to provide for you, or you doubt His goodness that He really will. D.A. Carson puts it this way. I think this is a really good quote right here. If we worry as pagans do, it is transparent that we are pursuing the same things that they are. But if we are then because the kingdom values, right, kingdom of the world versus kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom values are so different, the kingdom is necessarily denied. You've, you've denied the kingdom of heaven with your worry. Translation, your worry testifies that you long for a worldly kingdom, that life is really just about mere survival and climbing, climbing the social hierarchy as far as you can on your own strength and effort. Okay, then he, can, he goes on. Second, such worry on the part of those who profess faith in God constitutes some sort of denial of that profession. Since the Heavenly Father is well aware of your needs, and our, and our conduct, if we're worrying, is advertising loudly that we don't believe it. In summary, to worry is to functionally deny the kingdom or deny the Father. It's entirely inconsistent with living as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, and this is why it's not just silly or foolish or unhelpful, it's actually sinful. Anxiety is a sin to confess to God because we either deny the kingdom, we deny God's existence, or we deny God's power, or we deny God's goodness when we worry. 
This is why Jesus ends his fourth argument with this little phrase. Oh, you of little faith. This is verse uh, 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Anxiety amounts to unbelief. Now, this is not a rebuke for unbelievers. Jesus has already said the unbelievers are just totally consumed with this and cared for this. So this is a rebuke that he has for those who have confessed faith in him, that are following him, that want to be citizens of the kingdom, right? They've been grafted into God's family, but now they're not acting like it. Think of your own family, right? You have a family culture, you have family rules, right? Like when my children, if they act not according to my family rules, I don't just like boot them out of my family or consider like, right, they're, they're still in my family, they're just not acting like it. This is really Jesus's, his, uh, the perspective he's taking here. These are pure people who perhaps trust Jesus with their soul, trust Jesus with their eternal salvation, you trust Jesus with your justification, you trust that he'll get you to heaven, but then you're not willing to trust him with every other detail of your life, right? I trust that he'll get me to point B, but he's not going to care for me from A to B. Do you see how silly that is? It's, it's the same kind of a fortiori argument. If Jesus made a way for you to escape damnation and hell through his own blood by trusting in him in the cross, how much more is he not going to care for you in the little things? This phrase, O you of little faith, comes up three more times in Matthew. The only other time it's used is uh, in Luke, when Luke is actually repeating the same teaching that uh, Jesus is here. So it comes up three more times, and each time it has this exact same context. He's dealing with people who are following him, people who do trust him, people who are confessing him as Messiah, the disciples, but then they're, act, they're, the, they're kind of reversing course and acting like that's not the case, that they don't really believe that. Here it is. Matthew 8, 25 to 27, the disciples are caught in a storm, like out on the Sea of Galilee, and they wake up Jesus in the back of the boat. You know the story, right? They were like, hey, wake up, we're all gonna die. Like crazy storms coming in, waves are crashing over the boat, right? And Jesus doesn't stop and go, oh yeah, you're right. Like, those are some big waves. I can see why you guys would be scared. No, he rebukes them and says, why don't you trust me? Oh, you of little faith. Right? He doesn't come down and affirm their fear and anxiety. He rebukes it. In Matthew 14, 30 to 32, they're stuck in another storm. This time, this is the one where Peter steps out of the boat. Jesus is walking on the water towards them. And Jesus says, Lord, call me out on the water. If you do, I know I can do it. And he takes a step out of the boat. And he starts walking. And then it says, Peter began to doubt. And he started sinking. So Jesus grabs him, hauls him into the boat. And again, he's not like, yeah, Peter, that was really hard. Like, uh, I'm so proud that you even took the first step. He rebukes Peter for failing to doubt that he can walk on water with saying, didn't, like, why did you doubt? Oh, you have little faith. Like, I have sympathy for Peter. Like, yeah, I would doubt whether I can walk on water before. Like, I've never done that. Jesus doesn't have any sympathy. He's just like, why'd you doubt? I was doing it. I'm the Lord of creation. Don't you remember when I calmed that storm a few chapters ago? Like, if I can do that, why can't I command you to walk on water? That's Jesus' perspective. And then the third time here is Matthew 16, 7, 9. The disciples run out of food, and they're worried that they're just going to start starving to death, like, I don't know, out in the Judean wilderness or something. And this is, by the way, after Jesus had already fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. Make sense? So they've already seen him do that. They've already seen him multiply food to feed thousands of people, and now their little bag of like, bread for the weekend has run out. They're starting to worry. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, don't you remember when I fed all those people? Jesus just has no patience for worry and fear. 
because it speaks to unbelief. Every time, he's like, stop it. Did you forget who I am? Did you forget who your father is? Both in today's passage and these scenarios, Jesus thinks it's completely unreasonable to worry. That's why he's addressing our intellect the whole time. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Why are you worrying? This confirms that whenever you feel anxious, you really have a problem with your theology. Right? You don't need to be addressed here. You need to be addressed up here. You're failing to remember who God is or what his kingdom is all about. You need to have your thinking readjusted. Right? The problem isn't here. The problem is here when you're worrying. And so what do we do? Jesus has one positive command for us in this passage. Turn your attention back to verse 33 here. So he says, I guess in verse 32, he says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, food, drink, and clothes, but your heavenly Father already knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's our command. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? I think Charles Spurgeon has a really helpful bit here. Think about that. So instead of caring about food, drink, clothing, basic necessities, whatever it is that you picked, that you're holding right here, instead of focusing your care and concern on that, focus on what, what Spurgeon says here. When you have become the subjects of the great king, ask him to fully rule in your spirit and therein to set up his throne of righteousness. Ask that you may have all that peace that appertains to the kingdom and all the holiness which is the characteristic of that kingdom, all the rest and all the joy and all the spiritual wealth and all the sacred ennobling which comes to men who are brought under the sway of the Lord's Christ, whose gracious spirit brings every thought into captivity to his sovereign will. Further, being in the kingdom of God and enjoying its privileges, then seek to extend that kingdom. Go forth every morning, conquering and to conquer, with the weapons of love and kindness. Seek to win men to Christ. Enlisted in this holy army, carry on a constant crusade for Christ. From your earliest waking thoughts till you fall asleep at night, be intent, first and foremost, to win other hearts to Christ. Let all your care go in this direction, to serve God, to live for God, to glorify God. Seek this as earnestly as the merchant seeks more trade, as the miser seeks more gold, and as the sick man seeks a return of health. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I think that's a really, really great description of what that means, seeking the kingdom of God. And it's going to be specific to each of our scenarios, right? College student, mother or father, son or daughter, right? Grandparents, employer, employee. It's going to look different. But seeking to glorify God by obeying him, seeking out how you're going to worship him that day and see his goodness and share that with others. Jesus' antidote to anxiety is not to just stop caring about anything. It's to divert your cares from what you're worried about to the concerns of the kingdom instead. All right? And I have this illustration here that I, I think makes perfect sense to me, so hopefully it will to you. <laughs> Being in the kingdom, seeking the kingdom, is a lot like the life of a paratrooper. Okay, I was a paratrooper in the army for like three years. These are the guys who like jump out of airplanes with you know, parachutes on their back. Okay, so seeking the kingdom is a lot like this, this, this person I'm thinking of, right? So the, you're sent on some mission. Your job is to go capture an airfield or a bridge or like a supply depot or something like that behind enemy lines. In the moment you step out that plane into the dark of night, maybe anti-aircraft fire, all sorts of stuff going on and whatnot, you are now totally cut off 
from, from the rest of the army, totally cut off. You are behind enemy lines, you're going to descend to the ground, get your shoot off, engage your weapon, link up with your buddies, start executing your plan. And you have about 24 hours before the enemy counterattacks with like tanks and artillery and totally wipes you out. Because airborne troops are like the least armed and armored people in, in the army. Because all they can carry with them are the weapons that they can like strap onto them and parachute in with, right? So you have like rifles and the enemy's gonna show up with like attack helicopters, you know, in 24 hours. At that moment, when you get on the ground, is that the time and place to start thinking, are they gonna get to us? Are they, are they gonna be able to reinforce our position? Are the supplies coming tomorrow? Have they figured out like the intelligence scheme to like track where the enemy movements are and everything? Are they gonna be able to air land more weapons and whatnot to, to, to take care of us and, and get us out of here? Am I ever going home? Am I gonna be captured and taken to a POW camp and who knows where that ends? No, what do you do in that moment? You just do your job. You just do your job and you let your general worry about how he's gonna handle that. You have this tiny little slice of the pie, this tiny little slice of the whole operation. It might be, we need you to go dig a defensive position. We need you to go blow up that bridge. We need you to go wipe out that enemy you know, squad over there. We need you to treat your buddy who just got hurt on the jump. Quit worrying about the big picture. Quit worrying about the larger operation. Quit worrying about how we're get, they're gonna get to us. Just do your job in the moment. I think that's a lot like what seeking the kingdom is like. Right? You trust the general, you trust our leader. He's got the plan. He's got all the supplies and resources and troops to make it happen. And he needs you to just be faithful and concerned with that little mission he's assigned you in that time and space. And let him worry about the little things, which is the resources you need to, to do that. All right? Being a soldier in the kingdom of God is, is exactly like that. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow's going to bring its own trouble. Worry about what God has placed right in front of you and trust that our general has a plan to sustain you in the fight. Think about this for a second, okay? Your father wants you to be salt and light. He wants you to be salt and light in Rapid City. He wants you to lay up treasure in heaven. Jesus wants you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Your father wants you to feed the poor and care for the orphan. Your father wants you to do good deeds prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And guess what? You can't do any of that if you're dead. He knows that. He knows that. Like He has all these wonderful good deeds and like salt and light that he wants you to be. And he knows that if you die, you can't do any of that. So for as long as he gives you life, he's going to ensure that you are supplied, you are sustained, you are equipped, you are ready to encounter whatever he's prepared for you to walk in. He knows that you can't do that if you're dead. And he's going to care for you. You have a heavenly father. That's part of this eternal perspective switch that Jesus has been trying to get us to engage with for the entire Sermon on the Mount. When you worry about the things the unbelieving world does, you start to become no good to the heavenly kingdom because you're worried about all the things God's already taken care of. I already figured out how I'm going to feed you tomorrow. I've already figured out where you're going to live two years from now. I've already figured out what your degree is going to be and what your first job is going to be and how that career track is going to work out and bring you to a position where you can have great influence and win glory for God by introducing people to Jesus. Like God's already figured all that out. And so just worry about today. Worry about being faithful today, seeking the kingdom, like Spurgeon said. And God's going to take care of everything else.
So that's the first thing you do. But because you trust that the general is going to figure it out, you seek first the kingdom. And second, here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about anxiety. This is from Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. It's actually in the Greek the exact same command Jesus gives. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, here's a promise, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, that was Philippians 4, 6. We all probably need to just go memorize that this week. Okay? Paul's antidote to anxiety is prayer. Right? Jesus said, seek the kingdom. Paul says prayer. So let's do that together. As we're seeking the kingdom, we pray. If anyone in your family or in this church comes up to you and starts sharing some sort of worry or anxiety with you, the first words out of your mouth should be, have you prayed about it? And then when they say no, you just say, could we pray about that right now? And then if they say, yeah, I've been praying about it, you say, could we pray about that right now? Like the answer is just prayer. You get on that radio, you let the general know, hey, we're running out of this. We need this. We need reinforcements. Help. And then you hang it up and you just trust that he's got it. That's what prayer is, right? Seeking the kingdom and then through prayer, asking for whatever it is you think you need and then trusting that he's got it. Those are the antidotes to anxiety. Seeking the kingdom in prayer. God, and then there's this promise that's beautiful. God will guard your hearts and your minds with peace through Christ Jesus. Isn't that what you're asking for when you have anxiety? When you're filled with worry? What's the opposite? To have peace, contentment, to just feel that he's got it. That's the promise Paul has here. Present your request to God, whatever you need, and then doesn't say God's going to give you like whatever it was you just requested. It says he'll give you peace because you trust, you have faith. He's got it. He's taking care of it. I can let it go now. I don't have to be anxious anymore. I'm going to end our time together by just reading through the whole passage again. Jesus's command, don't be anxious. His four arguments. And then his positive command to seek the kingdom. And again, I want you to just for the one last time bring forth to mind whatever it was that you thought about at the very beginning, whatever it is that makes you anxious, whatever it is that causes you to worry, what you need peace for right now. I'm going to read verses 25 to 34, and then I'm just going to give you a minute to pray to God, to do what Paul says. Present your request to God. Let go of that thing and give it up to God and trust him with it, okay? So listen now. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
So please take this time now. <clears throat> maybe confess sin of anxiety in your life. Take this time to present your request to God. Here's that passage from Philippians 4 again. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So let your requests be made known to God now that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. I'll give you a minute to do that.